Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. Today's interview is somebody that's been very influential uh, when I was starting off in Christian apologetics. He's the author of numerous books to include Cold Case Christianity, Forensic Faith, God's Crime Scene, and was also featured in the movie God's Not Dead 2. Uh, he's none other than former homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. And uh, so, Jim, just thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, delighted to do so. You know, you don't know sometimes when you write a book what kind of reach it'll have, what kind of legs it'll have, you know, and, but you, you just feel like you're called to do it. And then it's just great to hear that, you know, people actually in some way found it useful. So, so thanks for having me. Yeah. You, you mentioned that cold case Christianity was how I was introduced to you, if you will, and your methodology, as far as apologetics is concerned. Right. And, and we spoke about this a little briefly already, but with the new atheist movement and their influence, as far as knowing that you can't disprove God's existence. Now they're changing it to making God's existence irrational or unreasonable, but your book, Cold Case Christianity, just how you stepped through like a cold case and a homicide, how you can piece together the rationality and the reasonableness of what is the most plausible explanation for everything that we see. It was so eye-opening to me. And for anybody that's out there that hasn't read the book yet, I encourage you definitely go get that book and check out uh, your ministry is cold case Christianity as well. Is that correct? Yeah. And I, I, I always struggle with what the ministry name should be for what you're doing. Right. I mean, uh, but that's the name of our first book. So I, I just kind of, it, it latched on. So you can mm -hmm. find us at coldcasechristianity.com. So you were a former homicide detective. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. I did that for a number of years. And, and uh, now I've got a couple of open cases that I tinker with, but for the most part, um, you know, that's, that's something that I just really don't have a lot of time to invest the kind of right. hours I used to invest in this. But my son now, uh, mm -hmm. is in the same profession that I was in before him, that my dad was in before me. So at some point, I wouldn't surprise me if some of these cases that I picked up from, say, 16 years ago, <laughs> that, that he might pick up in the future. So hopefully, it'll, they'll all eventually get done. I have to ask you, is being a homicide detective similar to the first 48 hours? Yes. As a matter of fact, that is the one show Interesting mm -hmm. you should say that because most of the time people will say, is it similar to CSI or is it similar to any number of um, kind of scripted? There's a difference between scripted and unscripted, right? So scripted shows are the ones that are kind of fiction that you write out and you have scripts and performers play the script, play the roles. And the unscripted shows like, like Dateline, I've been on a lot of Dateline episodes. Those are, you know, kind of give you a better overview. But the one that does the best job is that show, The First 48, because it, it, it really just is a guy with a camera who's trailing detectives trying to solve the murder in the, the best possible window, which is the first couple of days that, uh, after it occurs. So it, so it's nothing like the TV show Monk, though, correct? Yeah, it's nothing like Monk. <laughs> and that, so, my daughter used to be a huge fan of Monk, and so I think that she's probably seen every episode. It's a pretty, in some way, silly, and it kind of <laughs> reminds me of an old school TV show, you know, yeah. like, I don't know like Colombo or something like that, you know, but yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> so it's always fascinated me on the first 48 where they'll just go up to a scene and they won't have any, but anything other than a body, maybe some shell casings. And then they step through while they're 48 hours or maybe a couple weeks and, and they find out who the killer is. And the thing about yeah. your book, cold case Christianity is one thing that it really influenced me by is the fact that you take these concepts 
but you illustrate it by going through similar uh, incidents like in the cold case. And so you just make it very practical. Practical. So I can't stress it enough. Anybody out there that's wanting to learn more about apologetics, definitely get that book. So, but I titled our interview today, Investigating Mm -hmm. Christianity. And while I want to ask you like 55 different questions, I got to limit it because your time is valuable. So before we jump into any of the questions, could you give a little bit about your testimony, how you came to faith in Christ and what led you into doing what you're doing today? Yeah, well, you know me, I'm I'm always hesitant to... um, discuss my testimony, because I honestly don't believe testimonies, this is going to be controversial, I don't believe they matter. Um, I don't think my testimony matters, and I don't think anybody else's matters either. What matters is whether or not this system is true, right? How we got Mm -hmm. there or why you think it's something, because trust me, no one's got better testimonies than my friends and family members who are Mormons. I mean, my gosh, at some point, they are going to default and back into their testimony because they're taught to do that. And it can often be incredibly powerful. It doesn't make Mormonism true any more than your testimony makes Christianity true. But I think what people mostly mean when they ask me, they just mean like, well, what got you interested? Why are you here? You know, basically that I can talk about. And I think that makes sense to talk about as long as I, I kind of preface it by saying, you know, my personal story is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But it was simply that I was interested, um, I became interested, I was about 35 before I, I became interested in buying a Bible. Uh, sitting back on my shelf back here, the first one I ever bought, it was just a pew Bible. Um, uh, my wife was more interested in, in the role that um, maybe going to church would play in raising our kids because she had been, she, when she was a girl, she went to church. So I, and she, and she had, had kind of a cultural Catholic upbringing. And, and so I was more than willing to go. Well, my dad would do this. He'd be happy to go with you as a non-believer um, just to, to make sure that he's doing what his duty is, either as a grandfather or as a father. Um, he'd be happy to go. Right. doesn't mean he has to believe it. And I was the same way. I was more than willing to go as a non-believer. It would just be the, one of those things I would have seen as part of my duty as a good husband and father. Um, but when I got to that first church, you know, session, uh, in a meeting, um, the pastor pitched Jesus in a way that intrigued me because he said that he was super smart. Um, you know, basically that he was a person of interest and, and I thought, well, Hmm, I was, if all it was, was a matter of learning some ancient wisdom, because some of this stuff, if it's vetted through time and it still seems to apply 2000 years later, it's probably worth picking up. So I was more than happy, the same way you might be interested in the teaching of Baha'u'llah or the teaching of Buddha or the teaching that comes in the next fortune cookie. But, you know, any of that stuff may have some value to you. Wisdom statements. And I kind of expected that it would be more like a collection of proverbial statements that way. But when you open the Gospels and read through them, it, it struck me that in order to get the proverbial statements out, you had to read accounts in which someone is trying to convince me that this thing actually occurred. Like there's a beginning to the story, a middle to the story, an end to the story. Like he's, he's born, he has a ministry, and he dies on a cross. I mean, this is all sequential, like as if this is locked in history, as if it actually happened. That's very different than, for example, the, the writings of Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i faith, which are just a set of beautiful, proverbial wisdom statements. Um, they're not dependent upon any point in history. So I thought, well, okay, so how do I know that any of this stuff happened? How do I know that, that the account that's being recorded here is a reliable account? 
Well, that's that's something that I did have a skill set in, and I, I thought, well, could I apply the same principles we apply to cold cases, even when we have a case where the witness was interviewed and now passed away, the interviewer who witnessed, who interviewed the witness has also passed away. So now I've got a supplemental report and I've got no one I can talk to on the witness side or on the interviewer side. That's like the gospels. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to apply the same skill set uh, that I had in place and see, because I didn't expect them to pass the test, but um, I wasn't trying to disprove them though, either. You know, I was relatively neutral. I just saw things in the accounts uh, that intrigued me that I thought were worthy of a taking another step. Uh, it wouldn't have, um, you know, I have a friend, I always say that my friend Lee Strobel, who wrote the case for Christ, his wife, Leslie, became a believer. And then he was kind of on a mission to prove her wrong. Well, my wife and I did not become believers until we were together for 18 years, and it kind of happened at the same time. It was part of the same process. I, I wasn't really out to prove Susie wrong because Susie, we didn't own a Bible. We didn't know what it taught. We didn't know anything about it. So, so it was really, in some ways, a, a journey for both of us. Wow, that's that's amazing. And, and I like you. You brought it up. Like a lot of people are very familiar with Lee Strobel and his case and being sure. a journalist and and set off to do that. But he pardon me, sorry about that. Bless you. No, I can see that was coming. His, I can I can feel it coming. And I thought, well, how long can I can I go another forty minutes without sneezing? Probably not. So. <laughs> forty minutes. These are normally two hours. No, yeah, I'm just exactly. kidding. <laughs> but no, it, it's like he took his journalistic approaches and interviewed yes. a bunch of people. And you took sure. your homicide detective approach. And, right. and I love because it, it's a way to make it relatable to people. And uh, I that's, actually thought that everyone who, who did this, everyone who examined the claims of Jesus um, must do the same thing I did. Right. Because why would you step into this uh, without being mm. certain that it's true? Wouldn't, wouldn't you, I mean, I would never take anyone's, well, maybe it's just me being um, raised in this investigative environment um, that I, I would never trust an eyewitness without testing them. Um, and so why would I trust somebody That's telling probably. me something about this without testing it? I don't know. Yep. And you mentioned you have a family or friends that are Mormons. Yeah. So my dad's uh, second wife was, uh, became a Mormon or pretty early in the marriage and, mm -hmm. and they had six kids. So I have six half brothers and sisters who are all raised LDS. Oh, wow. So yeah, yeah. I do have, I do have about a lot of experience. Yeah. I have a lot of experience <laughs> with that group and, and, it, and it's, that's, and that's why I always compare that idea of testimony because that's such a powerful, um, uh, such a powerful notion and, and a powerful approach mm -hmm. Uh, from an LDS perspective. It is definitely, especially when they play so much emphasis on the burning in the bosom. And that's how they believe they know that the truth right. of the LDS church, uh, even right. though you get into fundamental LDS, you get into the mainstream LDS, there's a lot of, but we're not here to talk about LDS. I just sure. found that interesting. So, yeah. but so you well, mentioned I'll the I'll fact tell you why really, though, I'll tell you why, Daniel, that actually had a, yeah. had a play in this for me um, because I had, mm -hmm. It, it had um, Mormonism been true, I would have been, become a Mormon. And when I started getting interested mm -hmm. in reading scripture, I had family members who brought me a Book of Mormon. And so I went out and bought a quad. Mm -hmm. I've got a quad that has all the, you know, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price. It has, you know, Doctrines and Covenants. Mm -hmm. It has all the, the standard four scriptures, plus the Old and New Testament and the King James. So I had all the, so I, I, right. I, I actually read through the Book of Mormon before I read the Old Testament. So I really was interested mm. to see if that was true. But if you apply the same test, 
And as a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why I was so, it was so important to me to test it because I had two alternative claims about Jesus being presented to me at the same time. Yep. And I wasn't sure what to make of either one. And if you don't know anything about scripture, and I think the first, you know, I had a, the first pew Bible I bought was NIV, I think. Mm -hmm. can't remember, but you know, if you read through King James, if you were to start like in their new Testament and their quad, right. and then you continue through to the book of Mormon, it's written in the King James kind of style. And so you'll go, wow, okay, yeah. well, I, I can't tell the difference as a guy who's never read any of this scripture before. I can see right. why you would say, oh, yeah, it looks like it's pretty much the same, right? I mean, so, so I applied the same test to the Book of Mormon mm -hmm. that I applied to the New Testament. And that's really how I decided which of these two systems was legitimate. Right. And like you said, the, the Jesus of Mormonism is diametrically opposed to the Jesus of yeah, scripture absolutely. as well. And it's yeah. interesting in, in the Book of Mormon, there's, there's chapters of like first Corinthians and Isaiah that are just word for word quotes, right. if you will, within there. Right. And it's just interesting. But so you mentioned a lot of information about evidence. You wanted to investigate and look at the evidence for it. So really, it, to me, I chalk up uh, apologetics as evidential, presuppositional and experiential. And so it really right. seems like you lean more towards the evidential approach of apologetics. What would you say to those Christian apologists? You know, I, I believe that there are some really well-meaning ones that put so much stake in no presuppositional apologetics is it. We reject forms of evidential apologetics. What would you say as far as that's concerned? Well, I mean, I, I, I never approached this. You know, I never, it wasn't though as though I was, I was not a Christian when I started. So I didn't understand what the word apologetics even meant. And so when I, I can tell you, I got here by way of examining the text evidentially, didn't know whether that was part of any longstanding theological tradition or not, didn't care. Um, this is just how I ended up here. <laughs> so, and that was probably based because that's the nature of my work. Uh, this is the kind of work I, I put together cumulative circumstantial cases to mm -hmm. determine what occurred in the past. So I simply put together the cumulative circumstantial evidential case to see what happened in the past related to Jesus. I didn't know that there was this ongoing debate about apologetics, but I, I, I treat these debates the same way I treat ongoing debates about evangelism. Really? I'm not going to spend much more time talking about the thing we ought to be doing. Let's just go do it. So I, I'm very, very mixed on this view. If, if you are somebody who's out there sharing the truth about Christianity every day and having success, taking any one of classical... <laughs> presuppositional, evidential approaches to this. God bless you. Keep doing it. Um, it does now. But I would say to you that in the end, it's really hard to move away from an evidential approach. Because if we're going to presuppose something, the question is going to be, what is the something we're presupposing? If, for example, we're going to presuppose Christianity is true or that God exists, are we going to do it based on the New Testament in any way? Because if we are, what is it? What are we basing it on? We're basing it on claims made by eyewitnesses. Well, now you're stuck with direct evidence. So you're presupposing that the direct evidence, you're back to evidentialism. So I think in the end, you're kind of stuck with having to base your beliefs in something. If you presuppose these are true, well, what is it you're presupposing is true? You're, it's, a, it's a body of evidence. Um, now, now we can argue about whether or not the Gospels really are eyewitness accounts, but if they are, 
um, then we are stuck with them as direct evidence. That's the nature of eyewitness accounts. It's called, it's the only thing that qualifies as direct evidence. And so you're stuck with that form of evidence. I think in the end, and also a lot of my Mormon friends are mm -hmm. still very presuppositional in their approach to Mormonism. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. They, they would, they, pre, they would say that we, whatever you're basing your faith on, it's not true. It's been corrupted. It was lost in the earliest centuries of right. Christendom. At the death of the apostles, there was a falling away, and the plain and precious truths of Christianity were lost. And that great apostasy mm -hmm. means that whatever you're basing your stuff on has been corrupted. And so, again, if, I, if, if, if we're going to battle with another worldview that takes a rather presuppositional approach to their, because they cannot take an evidential approach on that side. No, they can't. It doesn't go anywhere. So, so in the mm -hmm. end, I, the evidential approach is what separated truth from error for me. And so I, I but I, at the same time, I, you'll find that there are times when I'm talking to somebody when I realize this is a presuppositional issue that I need to address with him or her. And so I'll slip into some other form of argument or some other form of thinking or reasoning or, 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 or approaching an event, but all of it. But my, my, my goal, and I mean, this is me becoming an old man. If my goal is no longer that I care to win this argument, to be honest with you, I, I just... Okay. In the end, I want to share Christ with you. This is just a way, hopefully, to remove the barriers that you've constructed so that I can get yeah. to the gospel. And if I'll take any strategy mm -hmm. I can to do that, um, but I, I always put mm -hmm. it this way. Um, when you uh, an officer puts on the radio that he's, that, that he's engaging some suspect, shots have been fired, and he's down, and he needs backup. Right. Um, you're going to drive by a lot of stuff to get to him. You're going to drive by a lot of misdemeanors that are occurring in your presence. You're going to drive by a lot of felonies. You could be having, it could be a purse snatch. You know what? Sorry, I'm in route to a shooting. I'm in route to, an, I'm, I'm code four in route to, a, a, I'm a code three in route to um, something dire. And I feel like sometimes we are in a code three culture but we want to stop and navel gaze and argue about how we're getting there. When the reality is we got shots fired. So I, I think that for me, I try to focus on the ma you know, major and the majors and, and take my eyes off the minors. And I think that however we categorize these approaches, I'm not opposed to anyone who takes, as a matter of fact, you'll see, I've got several, I, I retweet uh, on my phone. I have an RSS reader that follows 600, 700 right. different blogs. And on my social media, I'm constantly posting the best articles from people who are writing in apologetics. I just follow apologetics blogs. You believe it or not, there's that many out there. Yeah. And so I, a lot of them are um, presuppositional. And I think people are surprised right. that I would post, because sometimes we can argue with each other, right? You'll see there's some banter back and forth between evidentialists and preceptors. I don't care. Okay. Um, I, I, if, if it's, if it's helpful and it helps to, to, to pull down a, a barrier so that people can hear the gospel, knock yourself out. Amen. That's, that's exactly how I'm feeling too. And, and a lot of times early on when I was trying to get into apologetics, I've had to learn that it's not an academic debate to win. It's a spiritual warfare that must be fought type deal. And I love what you said, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Evidence, presuppositional, whatever way is going to break down that wall to be able to reach them for Christ. And again, the way you're able to take like an illustration of, okay, you're on scene, you got to report to a shooting, you're going to pass all these other peripheral issues. 
those are just peripheral issues. The main they thing are. is Christ and who is Christ. And so yep. I love that. And again, that's that's just the nature of like whole case Christianity, how you're able to take spiritual things and make them practical and relatable to us. I love that, Jim. I love that. Well, a lot of it too. Let I just didn't you. have a history in the church, you know, where where we use language. And I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of specialized language within disciplines. It's helped, it's clear. And we have that, we have specialized language within Christianity. Um, but I wasn't raised around any of that. So, so this idea that there were, were tech, I don't think I read my first apologetics. So as I was examining the scriptures, I was, mm-hmm. I guess, doing apologetics in some sense, but I wasn't aware yeah. that there were already books out there that probably could have helped me because I didn't know what the genre was. And this is all pre-internet, you know, so this is early, pretty early internet. So that there was some stuff you could go online to find resources. So for example, I found all the church writings of the church fathers online. I printed them all out and put them in a notebook so I could go through the writings of the church fathers. But, but for the most part, I, I didn't know about people like, uh, like Norm Geisler. Oh man, he was writing, you know, years probably before I even started investigating it. Had I known about Norm Geisler's, you know, at least summaries, I could have looked at his bibliographies. I could have probably gone a lot further, a lot faster. I had to kind of do this from scratch. The first apologetics book I read, mm-hmm. I read was probably, I think it was probably after I was a Christian, it would have been Mere Christianity, mm-hmm. which I thought did an oh, excellent yeah. job of putting into words and into prose some of the things that I was thinking mm-hmm. as well. So, so again, I think a lot of it is if you don't know, if you're not well-churched in that sense, you're just coming at it. I wouldn't have known any other way to express these truths except in the context of my professional work, because that's all I, I really had to draw on. That's awesome. And another thing about evidential approach, the apostles ended up believing in Christianity because of the evidence of the resurrection, the physical resurrection. Yeah. That empty Oh, yeah. This is, this is something I talk about in forensic faith. I mean, we've got a rich evidential history. It's kind of hard to deny. Jesus was an absolute adamant evidentialist. There's no other way around this. He, he would heal before he would herald. And the healing, that miraculous healing, he would use as the evidential basis for his authority. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe on me, he said, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles. So I've given you reason to believe. And so when people like John the Baptist have doubts, the first thing they do when they send their disciples to Jesus, Jesus does not scold uh, the disciples or tell the disciples to go back and tell John he should pray about it. No, he actually says, reminds the disciples of the miracles he has worked in front of them. The blind can see and go back and tell John what you just saw. And that's what he does. That's an evidentialist approach because it's on the basis not of, of trusting my statement, on the basis of anything other than what you've seen evidentially, which attests to the, this is why Peter says that Jesus is a man attested to you by miracles in the first sermon ever Mm. given as an evangelistic setting. He argues that you ought to know Jesus is who he said he was because he gave you the evidence of miracles. And that's to me was uh, pretty powerful. Even the fact that all of the disciples who became apostles were qualified to be apostles based on their eyewitness status. This is why Matthias is qualified to replace Judas. You know, he's somebody who knew Jesus from the baptism through the resurrection. That was one of the qualifications that Peter had in the upper room in Acts 1. You got to be that guy in order to replace Judas. Well, why? Because as Jesus told Thomas, yeah, you're blessed, but blessed are more those who come to believe. How? Through your testimony, Thomas, you're going to be the direct evidence that they're going to use 
because you saw all this and I want you to see it. Why? Because I'm going to trust that you will testify about this for years to come. That to me is very powerful. That's direct evidence. You're stuck with it, no matter how you get around it. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing because that's one thing that Christianity has over any world religion, really, and especially Mormonism, because there's nothing attesting archaeologically uh, or even historically right. as far as the claims within there. Right. But one of the things that really gripped me uh, reading Cold Case Christianity was the aspect of abductive reasoning. Could you explain that, how, how you explained it in your book, conceptually as well as practically? What is it and how does this really point to the existence of God? Yeah, so it's really basically just the idea of inferring to the most reasonable or, or um, you know, inferring the most reasonable conclusion from evidence. Um, it's not hard. We all do it all the time. When your kids come home late and they give you a reason why they're late, you're kind of looking around evidentially to see, does that reason make sense with what I know? Um, and so mm -hmm. what you do in an objective reasoning is you make two lists. You make a list of all the evidence, a list of all the possible explanations. You compare the evidences to the possible explanations. You cross out the explanations that don't work based on the evidence. And you hopefully are left with one that is the best explanation for the evidence. And we all do this in criminal trials. Jurors do this all the time. They're going to get one story from one side, another story from the other, a bunch of evidence in between. And then the question is, which of these two stories best fits the evidence you've seen? But we do this every day. We do this when we try to figure out, you know, what was it the other day with my wife and we, we found something on the, on the driveway and we're like looking at, okay, well, what, how, what, how, do we, how do we explain this based on the evidence in the driveway? Um, so I think a lot of the time it's so natural to us. We don't even think about it systemically, but you can take this approach to determine things in your future. If you ever encounter a, a question about something, well, make two lists, make a list of all the evidence and I did that with the resurrection. Like, what, what would I say that I believed as an atheist? You know, someone's done a better job of making this list he, is Gary Habermas. He's made a list of what he calls the minimal mm -hmm. facts list. He kind of says, hey, these are the minimal facts that 80% of a biblical scholars, regardless of where you, you fall on the spectrum of liberal to conservative scholar. When I say liberal to conservative, I mean, are you a believer? Are you a skeptic? But you can still be a scholar and be a skeptic. Uh, I'm looking at all of those scholars, there's like a core set of beliefs that the vast majority believe about the resurrection, even if they deny it. So uh, mm -hmm. some of those things I read through, but to be honest, for me, it was a much shorter list as an atheist. I would have said, yeah, I'm not a Jesus mither. I believe Jesus probably lived. That's reasonable given the evidence. No problem. Mm -hmm. um, I think he died on a cross and was buried, but that doesn't make, mean that Christianity is true. The fact that Jesus lived does not mean that Christianity is true. And then there were people who said he saw him alive afterwards. And the tomb was empty because you could certainly end this in the first century by either getting the tomb, the body of Jesus or getting these folks to recant. Those, those things apparently never happen. So, so what? Uh, I can explain these things in any number of ways. I just made a list of all the things that as a skeptic, I would have accepted about the Jesus story. And then I made a list of all the ways you might explain mm -hmm. those. Well, how do I explain an empty tomb? Well, maybe somebody stole it stole the body. How do I explain these accounts? Well, maybe they lied. Maybe they are delusional. Maybe, yeah. you know, there's a number of ways to explain this. Turns out there's like six or seven ways to explain it that aren't even Christian that would basically try to yeah. seek to explain. Maybe there was an imposter. Maybe one person was influenced and influenced the rest. I mean, you know, maybe he never really died on the cross. He just looked like he was dead. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could explain the basic facts that I even would have accepted as an atheist. And of course, there is the Christian. Explanation that it just happened the way it's 
recorded in the gospels. So I, I just needed to know, uh, I needed to take the time to see if one of my previously held explanations adequately explained the evidence. And I try to do this a little bit in the book where we're just talking about, okay, there's, so here's why I abandoned explanation one. This doesn't work. Here's why I abandoned explanation two. This doesn't work. Now, when I got to the Christian explanation, I would have previously abandoned it as well because it requires a miraculous resurrection, which I was inclined to reject out of hand. But the reason why I was going to reject it out of hand was not because I um, uh, thought it's not evident. It was, but I rejected anything supernatural. So if you're going to say to me, in order for this explanation to be the legitimate explanation, it requires something supernatural, a resurrection. That's why I would say, no, I don't include it supernatural. I don't do that. I mean, that's not history. That's mythology. It's a different genre. I'm not going to include supernatural things, but that is where I had to check myself because why am I rejecting the supernatural? Right. So I'm somebody, I say this all the time. I'm somebody who believed that the entire universe leapt into existence, all space, time, and matter leapt into existence from nothing. I believe that that's big bang cosmology. That's what the science demonstrates. We're not in an eternally old universe. We're in a finite universe that had a beginning. And you can make that case any number of way through a number of different disciplines, both scientific and philosophical. And so the fact that we're in a limited universe that has a beginning, the question is, well, how did it begin? Things that have beginnings require beginners. Now that beginner can be very naturalistic, but here's the problem. There is no space, time, or matter before the universe began to exist. This is made evidentially from science. In other words, it's not like you have a spatial void. No, that's something. That, there's no space before space. So that means we're talking about true nothing. No space, no time, no matter. It's not like you have this multiverse generator in which you have energy popping in it. No, there's no, none of that. It's true nothing. This is what the science demonstrates. Now, what I see people try to do now is to redefine nothing. Well, no, nothing could be spatial. No, no, space is something. So you were talking about the science says there's no space before space. So that begins at the beginning of the universe. So the question is, what do we know that has the power to create a universe, but is itself outside of space, time, and matter? You start to get really scarily close to, well, one thing for sure, we call nature, naturalism, the stuff of space, time, and matter impacted by physics and chemistry, we are outside of nature, we're extra biblical, extra natural, or, or supra, or super natural, we're outside of nature. So if you're already somebody like me, right. who accepts that, I accepted there was a cause outside of space, time, and matter. What am I arguing about? The, 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 I call everything on the new pages, on the pages of the New Testament, that's all small potato miracles compared to everything from nothing. So if there's a being out there that could do it to create everything from nothing, then the biggest miracle on the pages of scripture is Genesis one. It's not anything in Luke or Mark or Matthew or John. And that kind of opened the door. Oh, exactly. Yeah. But I think Lawrence Krauss is really famous for trying to explain what nothing is. And, and even to today, we really don't have a concept of nothing because we even still have particles and elementary particles all around us all the time. And so even a vacuum right. isn't necessarily nothing as some of those uh, naturalists would like to posit, but definitely love that. Uh, part of the book in Cold Case Christianity, you mentioned about the eyewitness accounts of the gospels. Mm -hmm. Now we know that Luke really, uh, I believe it was around the 
city of Troas when Paul was on his missions trips. That's really when he joined Paul. But as far as Matthew, Mark, and John, what evidence, how could you see clearly that these are, in fact, eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Christ? Well, we have with, okay, so Mark, so Matthew and John are the two accounts that bear the names of apostles that we know were with Jesus, but those would be falsely attributed. That's going to be the argument from skeptics. Those weren't really mentioned. Uh, Matthew does not mention he's the author anywhere in the gospel of Matthew. John doesn't mention his name anywhere. So I don't care who wrote those. I don't care if it was the apostle John or the elder John. It doesn't matter to me. The question is, was whatever John who wrote that thing, do we have good reason to believe it's an eyewitness account? And you'll see things in there. Uh, you'll see, for example, the writer of, of John. You can test this any number of ways. Uh, number one, you can ask, is it, is it geographically accurate? Is it sociologically accurate? Is it, do we have good reason to believe? Is it linguistically accurate? Do we, do we have good reason to believe that it mentions things that would only be known to people who could actually have seen these things at a certain time frame? You know, the pools of Bethesda that John talks about in the Gospel of John, and he uses a, a present tense as if these things, he's writing as if you could still go there and visit this pool. That pool was destroyed in 70 AD during the, the, the Roman siege of, of, of Jerusalem. So it looks to me that he's talking about something that was in place early. And so we have to test all these accounts to see if they really pass the test of eyewitnesses. And so that's what the whole second half of cold case is about. It's really about uh, what is the test that we apply to witnesses in criminal trials to see if they're reliable witnesses. And it's a four-part test. Was the witness really there to see what he said he saw? Was, I mean, can he be corroborated in some way, knowing full well that this corroboration is going to be a fraction of the overall account? Because my mm -hmm. cases don't, there's no video back in those days. So I a case in 1972, there is no glowing rectangle to record it with. So you end up with, you got to like, what, what do I have? I can, there's several different kinds of touch point corroboration. Uh, the third thing is, has this guy changed his story? Some us, modus something that's not true because it favored witnesses. You could apply that test to the gospels, but really the question is, there's an authorship issue here. It seems to me, um, we know that the earliest church fathers who write about, about the gospel of Mark. <laughs> attribute it to the Mark of the, who, according to Papias, for example, wrote this at the feet of Peter in Rome when Peter was not really setting out to give a linear account of Jesus. And Mark's account, according to Peter, is, is accurate, but it's not orderly. He even admits it's not in precisely the right order. And then you have someone like Luke, who's in the first person at certain places in the book of Acts when he's writing. But he clearly doesn't know, he didn't know Jesus. Jesus, but now he's encountering all the people who did see Jesus, and he says in the first uh, paragraph of his uh, gospel that he is referring to those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, Jesus. So the question then becomes, why do we, you know, I, I hear all the time, uh, you can't, Luke didn't write Luke. Look, if you didn't have the book of Acts, if you're just in some small church in, in Asia Minor, and you had a gospel mm -hmm. because that was the one copy of manuscript you actually had. You had the gospel of Matthew. Would you even know who Luke mm -hmm. is? 
If all you had was the gospel mm. of Luke, would you even know who Luke is? If all you had was the gospel of Luke, would you know who Mark is? So if you had Luke and Mark, you'd have two gospels. Why would you consider them authoritative when there's nothing in Luke or Mark that says that Luke or Mark were even part of this group? You wouldn't know that unless you had the book of Acts. I mean, if you're going to attribute, mm-hmm. the, even the Gnostics who wrote lies about Jesus were smart enough to attribute yeah. their lies to the disciples in some name or other. You know, it's the gospel of Philip. It's the gospel of Mary Magdalene. It's the gospel of, you know, they're trying to give names to these things to legitimize them. Well, it seems to me if you're going to lie about who wrote Luke and who wrote Mark, you should lie better because those lies aren't even attached to people that you would necessarily know had make it the, you know, make it the gospel of, of I don't know, uh, Nathaniel, you know, give it a name of somebody mm-hmm. who at least appears somewhere in the story. So I just don't know why we would think that it, it appears that history will tell us. And by the way, there's no manuscript evidence to argue for other uh, uh, authorship. It's not as though we have an ancient manuscript that reads word for word like Mark, only it's called Julie. It's the gospel of Julie. No, no, there's nothing like that. The earliest manuscripts we have bear the names of what we have today. And the earliest authorities we have in the church attribute those gospels Mm -hmm. to the people we have today. So what? on the basis of know why we're doing that we're doing that typically and by the way people will say well scholarly authorities 1500 years or are you talking about scholars in the last three or four centuries because you'll see that if you look at all the scholarship biblical scholarship prior to say the the german movement uh, of scholars most of which were skeptical uh, you'll have an entirely different uh, doesn't does it surprise you that in a post-enlightenment world that wants to move away from Christianity, you find scholars who are going to deny or, or um, doubt or cast shadows on every single claim of the New Testament. That doesn't surprise me. So if we're going to look at like the historic 2,000 years worth of biblical scholars and say, what's the average? What percentage actually believe in them? Uh, they would say, no, no, those don't count. The only ones that count are the ones in the last 200 years, apparently. But the reality of it is that that, that brings to the uh, different set of, of conditions. I always say it this way. These scholars are drawing mm-hmm. inferences from the facts on the pages. So fine, listen to what they say, at least take into consideration. But don't you accept their inference. You go back to the facts on the pages and see if, that's how, if that makes sense to you. And we tell this in jury trials yeah. all the time. My scholar, my expert's going to say one thing about this DNA evidence. His scholar is going to say something totally different about the DNA evidence. But guess what? You don't have to accept either one of these guys. All you have to do is go back to the DNA evidence and see, based on the larger case, what the best inference is. You don't have to accept any particular expert. Exactly. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they studied them things out to see whether they'd be so. Right. Like they went back to the source. Koreans. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was up to me. I'd have a gospel of Bart. Bartholomew's always left off. You know, you mentioned the gospel of Julie, but I was thinking about gospel of Bart. But I know, right? This is a question. Yeah. (laughs) This is a question that is kind of to my heart, if you will. But it's a tough one that as an apologist, to me, it's difficult to answer, and sometimes as an apologist, we just truly don't understand the answer. We have finite minds with an infinite God. 
but the fact if God's omniscient and God knows every decision that somebody's going to make and God knows who will and who will not accept him, why in God's omniscience does God still create people whom he knows wouldn't receive his gospel message? Or do you believe in the middle knowledge view like William Lane Craig? Um, I think, I mean, I'm open to um, that potential possibility, this idea that God would know every decision you might make in any given situation. Therefore, if he knows in advance that even if he sent a missionary in that given situation, you would not accept what the missionary said, then he's not going to send the missionary because he knows the out, potential outcome of every possible choice you might make in every possible situation. Okay, well, there's probably, we can mine that out. I have good friends who are take that position very strongly. But I think that part of it is a more simpler, a simpler probably answer is, is what you said, is that why would God create people who, oh, oh, people, that there it is, because God's not creating robots. He's creating people. <laughs> oh, that's nastier. That's a little bit dirtier in the sense that, oh, be much easier to create a technological a robot that would simply respond the same way every time this data is input. He's programmed to do this. This phone is programmed. If I push this button, it'll always trigger that functional response. Um, and that's not a person, though. That's, that's technology. Um, if I had robots that were already determined to do what I wanted them to do, love me, I could create a bunch of robots in my house and they would constantly adore me night and day. They'd always say nice things to me, none of which would be very satisfying, <laughs> right? Because none of which would really be true. They just are programmed to say this. It's like I have this button that's a little head pops up. You're the best and pops back down again. Okay, does that really make me think I, I'm, I'm genuinely being appreciated by this thing? No, this thing can't unappreciate me. All this thing is programmed to do is appreciate me. So it's meaningless. If everyone appreciates you, no one appreciates you, okay? So there's the problem is that uh, if God is in the business of creating people, he has a dilemma, not a dilemma. It's just a logical reality that you cannot create free agency in which choices are meaningful, in which I have the ability to persuade you. I cannot persuade you if you cannot make free choices based on my persuasion. I can't even reason with you unless mm -hmm. we are free will agents then reason is useless because reason is you listening and saying freely that of these two options, this one is most reasonable. You can freely choose it without free agency. You have no reason. You also have no love because love has to be offered freely. And you can also have no blame because I couldn't choose. Otherwise you can't blame me. You can have no creativity, no art, because that's about taking free choices about, painting or drawing or writing or, or videoing, whatever it may be. So it turns out that the things that most of us think are the most important, love, accountability, creativity, reason, even if you're not a believer, those things probably matter to you. But in order to get those things, you'd have to have a causal agent or causal source that could allow you the free agency to be uncreative and unreasonable and unloving right? Those things have to be an option because you can't have one yeah. without that. You can't have true love and reason without free agency as the foundation. So that means in order to create a world that we all think a good God would create, a world in which reason matters, love matters, accountability matters, creativity matters, mm -hmm. God has to do the dangerous thing of creating a world in which free agency 
is the foundation. And that means that some of us are going to hate him and are not going to use reason and are not going to want to create anything beautiful and are not going to want to be held accountable afterwards. So you have, it's, it's, it's logically unreasonable to create a world in which one is separated from the other because all you'd have then is robots and you'd be no, there'd be, those things would be absent from the world. So I think because God wants to create people, he's created them in the way that a loving God would create them with the freedom to not love him at all. And like the late Ravi Zacharias said, uh, the ultimate ethic is love. And without volition, free will, there can be no love. Like you're saying, it's all predetermined. You're all just robots. And there's no different from the naturalist argument of dancing to the chemicals of our brain. Well, this is the thing of these two possible sources for the universe only one mm-hmm. now look there's a mystery and there's a lot of us who as theologians would say well there's that, that god is as, as de- determined in his choices as as physics are but look physics have no option physics if everything in the, gov- the universe is governed by physics and chemistry physics cannot say i'm going to allow you this choice now all physics can do is once one domino once one neuron fires in your brain it causes the requisite um, thought and it's not a matter of free agency because physics overrun everything but a free agent God could say, yeah, I can control all this right now, but I'm going to let go because I love mm-hmm. this person. I'm going to allow. Now, how does that actually work theologically? Look, we can banter the back and forth on that. That's another argument for the ages, but there is no counter uh, example in physics. Physics, if it's true, if we're in a, gov- a universe governed by physics, we are in a deterministic physicalistic universe in which there is no free agency everything was determined from the beginning of the universe one domino led to this one right now i was determined in advance to say this given my brain chemistry and what's been firing in my brain for the last 59 years this is all determined physically so only one of these two options it seems to me even gives us the ability the freedom it would be a god who could control it all but unlike physics is a free mind that can say, I'm not going to. And so I think that of those two choices and how you parse that out, that like, let that be an argument for theologians, but you cannot parse it out on the, on the um, atheist side. Right. I like how you separated the two between naturalism and supernaturalism and the fact that only one really holds the key to answering these questions. Otherwise we're all just deterministic or fatalist uh, in essence, but one of the questions that I entertain kind of frequently is the fact of miracles. And so it seems like in the Old Testament, there's just miracle after miracle, whether it's the Red Sea, the 10 plagues, whatever the case is, water from the rock type deal. A lot of people would say that miracles don't happen as frequently anymore. What would you say about that? Do you believe miracles happen as frequently? What was the purpose of miracles? Uh, what would you say? Well, okay, I think that I never believed that miracles happen frequently, even in the Old Testament. And I think if you look at the scriptures and you were to actually take the historical chronology, like just take a timeline that starts off as far back in the past as you want, and then stretch it out all the way to to, to where we are today. And then you placed uh, on that timeline, starting in Genesis, going through all the Pentateuch, going through Kings, going through all of that. Where do you see miracles occurring in the historical timeline of the Old Testament and New Testament? What you're going to discover is that they're all bunched up. Like, you know, if that's a long, let's say you mean your timeline four feet long 
it wouldn't be like every you know quarter inch there'd be a miracle all the way through to think, 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 think. wow look how much activity there is in, in the bible but there's no activity today well actually you'll see that they are bunched up around four primary people moses elijah elisha and jesus mm-hmm. isn't that interesting there's a lot of gaps a lot of biblical history in which nothing miraculous really happens that to me is interesting mm-hmm. right so like, what, why does that happen? But I mean, the lion's share of miracles are bunched up around those four historical figures. And so like, what, I, what is that about? Well, I do think it is about that miracles attest to the messenger. And so Moses was attested mm-hmm. by miracles. Elijah, Elisha were attested by miracles. Peter says that Jesus was attested by miracles. Miracles authenticate, verify the messenger. And I do think that God is completely capable of, and and is constantly involved in his creation even today. I'm not a deist. I think that the fact that we are continuing to breathe, that my body retains a certain body heat, that this is all evidence of an interactive God who is, is providing for us even as we speak. Okay. That's my view. And I do think that God can work miraculously. I'm not a a secessionist. I I don't believe that, that, um, that the miracles have ceased uh, the closure of of Mm -hmm. the new Testament. But I do think that, that we have to test everything, right? Because a lot of crazy, silly stuff has been done. Even in the pages of, there were magicians in the New Testament that were recorded as well and challenged whether or not their uh, acts were from God. We ought to be doing that right. even today. But I, do, don't, I don't expect the frequency of miracles because as I see the biblical record, they're not all that frequent. They are bunched up in those epic persons who came and were attested by miracles. So I, I expect that if, if I started to see somebody was able to, to do the kinds of miracles we see on the pages of the New Testament, I'd be wondering if God is getting ready to attest another voice in, in the history of humanity. I don't expect to see that voice until the return of Jesus. So I, I think that um, for the most part, I don't believe that miracles are all that frequent, but I am not opposed to the idea that God is still God and can do what God, what God does, which is uh, interact in his creation. Well, there is a couple of occasions uh, where <clears throat> witnessed some medical uh, healings, if you will, that doctors couldn't even explain. People that are close to me, and it's just fascinating. I don't believe God has stopped his miracle work. But like you said, and I love how you just jumped right on it right away, is the fact that people believe that you have all these miracles in the Old Testament that happen. So, But no, like you said, most of them are just bunched up together. Yeah. And the fact that when you look at the span of history, that in the Old Testament, they weren't that frequent. You right. know, if you take a 6,000-year-old yeah. old earth yeah. and you're looking at, okay, they have about four or 5,000 years before Christ came, you don't have a lot of miracles. They're all central, like you said, around right. Moses, around Elijah, Elisha, and then even Paul. Paul mentions in the book of Corinthians yes. that uh, uh, signs of an apostle were worked among you because in a day when there is gospels, right. uh, false gospels going out, like you said, What's the test of the validity validity of the message? And it's going to be the apostolic right. miracles that were happening at the day as well. So I let me just say so- one more kind of contra- kind of controversial thing in, in the modern church. <laughs> uh, I still see that people will try to say, hey, you don't got the service where we're going to have a miracle healing, whatever. Look, if you wanted to really take out, this is going to be controversial. If you wanted to really take out any um, misbehavior in any profession, 
you have to take out the three things that drive misbehavior. I talk about in cold case, the three things that drive any lie are the same three things that drive any murder. But they're also the same three things mm -hmm. that make a pastor uh, vulnerable to falling that, and we've saw this even like, you know, we, listen, we just talked about Robbie Zacharias. Let's be honest. These, there's nobody outside the temptation of these three things. And it's discussed. I've discovered this just by working cold cases, but uh, it's pretty clear my, my light, you can tell one of my lights just went out on this side. So I'll, I'm getting too dark in here. I'll turn this up a little brighter. Um, but you'll see this is even true, right? Um, uh, on the pages of scripture. And I just didn't know the pages of scripture well enough to know that this was there. But it's mm -hmm. in 1 uh, John. And it comes down to, you know, greed, financial greed, sexual lust, and the pursuit of power. So I know that if we see a miracle, the first thing I'm going to ask is the person who's uh, claiming to have performed this miracle publicly. Are they benefiting in some way from money, sex, or power? And in an age in which everyone's media platform is so important, right? Then it may just be that that is the thing that I'm going to be looking at, right? Because if, if I could do this, it's all about, am I asking you for money? Is this going to increase my ability to ask you for money? Am I have a scandalous life that's hidden on the side that you don't even know about that this is feeding? Look, you take all those things out. I'll give you an example. If you wanted to reform politics, well, pretty simple. You got to take mm -hmm. out the sex, money, and power. Here's how you do it. No one ever gets paid for political office or you get paid whatever you were being paid before. You get, you get your salary yes. covered for, for the four years you're serving. That's it. Nothing more. And there's a cap. You can only be powerful for those four years. And the minute there's any sexual yep. impropriety, you're, you're done. And you got to pay back all the money. Look, you just take those three things yeah. out and you'll see that for the most part, people will operate in a way that's honorable. And, and that's why when I see miracles, even today, when I'll see like, you know, televangelists or people who will be, um, you know, claiming something happened miraculously, then I want to know, is there anything to gain in sex, money or power? Because if there is, then I'm probably going to be suspicious. No, that's, that's definitely true. Uh, I know what the poster child would happen to be at least Benny Hinn, but I don't know if you're right. familiar with, I think it's yeah. his nephew, Costi Hinn. Uh, yeah. I, I like what he has to say a lot about it because he was right there in the middle of it. But yeah, right. moving on from there, I just got like two other questions sure, left. Sure. Uh, sure. So as an apologist and as somebody that has a son that's about to go to college uh, mm -hmm. this coming fall, uh, we see typically children that are raised up in the church leaving the church once they go to college, become a young adult. They're just leaving in droves. Uh, what do you believe is the cause and how do we remedy that? Okay, a couple of things have now kind of taken form in terms of names um, that we've kind of given to these uh, worldview issues. First of all, be encouraged, brother, because for the most part, um, this happens, but those who do leave the church when they're pulled, let's say as, as sophomores in college, and then, you know, you used to go to church when you were a kid, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you going to church now? No. Do you believe this stuff anymore? No, I don't believe it. So you'll see that, yeah, there's, there are lots of folks who are in church in college in their college years who will report that they are no longer believers. But if you took the time to ask them, when did you decide it wasn't true? It didn't happen in college. It happened between the eighth and 10th grade. Somewhere, depending on the survey, and I've collected all of these surveys, between the ages of 10 and 17. Now, they may not have told us. They kind of continue to hang out with us and get, to go through the motions with us, but they've been gone for years. Now they get into a place where they have great liberty to be gone, and so they're public about it. 
right? Because they didn't feel as comfortable about it when they were still living at home. I get that. But they didn't leave while they were there. They left while they were here. So it turns out that parents still have a role to play. The age of skepticism usually starts when somebody exposes you to skepticism. And that used to be a stranger in university back when I was a kid. That hasn't been true for years. Now it's the minute you give your kids the, the glowing rectangle. This is where skepticism comes from. Mm. You give it to them usually in junior high or somebody else gives it to their friends in junior high and then you're stuck. So I would say that for the most part, we as parents still have a role to play in this and we should be encouraged that we can still, it, it's going to happen earlier than you think. The time just, I always say that like high schools, for example, to teach Christian worldview and apologetics in your senior year before they go to college, it's too late. You need to teach that in the seventh mm -hmm. grade because that's before they encounter skepticism in a culture that's constantly pushing skeptical. I mean, if you watch Netflix, there are very few shows that would advance a Christian worldview on the most popular streaming video uh, service in the country. And, you know, it, it used to be as Christians, we would think, well, the family's important. So I'm going to form a ministry that's going to take, it's going to really um, advance Christian worldview. And so we're going to invest in can political candidates that advance the Christian. Really? That money was better spent in the arts because it turns out that what's happening on Netflix is far more influential than what, whatever your politician locally is saying, especially in the minds of young people. So I really think we have to return to the arts and, and we have a rich, I just wrote another book called Person of Interest and, and I examine the role of Jesus as played historically in the arts. And I will tell you that we have abandoned what we used to lead and we need to return to a position of leadership because we have a beautiful, mm -hmm. true story that could be told in any number of forms without even talking about biblical events. There are Christ figures in some of the greatest literature ever written. Uh, that shared the attributes of Christ, even though they aren't Jesus on the pages of those books. They were influenced right. by people who either believed in Jesus or were so saturated in the divine story that they couldn't help themselves but write it again. So I think that we have to go back and reclaim the arts. And if we don't do that, we, get, we, do it, we, we neglect that at our own peril. Now, as far as you know, mm -hmm. what, like what's causing this, uh, I think the young people, Gen Z, are probably, we wrote a book about Gen Z called So the Next Generation Will Know. I wrote it with Sean McDowell. And we really are talking about mm -hmm. strategies to help teach Christian worldview to the next generation. And I will tell you that what the next generation, and a lot's been written about this already, this idea of express, expressive individualism. It's kind of the term I'm hearing now applied to this. What I used to always talk about was the a growing role of autonomy. But it really is the same thing. It's the idea mm -hmm. that I can create my own world and I, my world's the only world that matters. You know, I can actually find news services that reflect my echo chamber. I can find media and consume media that only reflects my interests. I could be so geeked out on one video game. I can find websites and, and family, community, uh, relationships with people who have that very small, same niche interest. So I can now, I have autonomy. I have the power to create a world of my own. And we've only amplified that with technology. So all these young people and all of us as older people are able now to create micro narratives about reality. And here we are as Christians arguing that there's a meta narrative that, over, that we really are, are called to bend our knee to. Why? Why would I do that? When I am in the custom, I've now got several, I've got a decade of technology encouraging me to create my micro narrative. And so it's this idea that we are so individualistic that I'm the only one that matters. You be you, baby. 
It's all that matters. And so, so there's, there's, there's no objective transcendent truth claims. Everything is a matter of subjective opinion. And I think that is not just true for young people. That's true for all of us because the technology is kind of, it's not like we make an effort to broaden our horizons. We, instead, what we do is we make an effort to, to draw lines in the sand and stand on our side and create uh, groupings and our tribes. We call this, you yeah. know, how, you, how do you market to your social media tribe? You heard that kind of language. We're becoming more tribalistic in our way of seeing the world, yet we're arguing as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that God has called us to a family that's going to erase those divisions. And I think that the technology is encouraging us to draw stronger divisions. And that's one of the challenges we're going to have to help young people see. I think it's going to start with, it's so much more foundational that I don't know you can talk about the gospel until you first talk about the things that precede the gospel. And one of those is the nature of truth. You know, what is the nature of truth? Because if it's all a matter of subjective opinion, then why would you even care what my opinion about God is? You can have your own. It's of equal value mm-hmm. validity. So I think we're going to have to step back so and talk about the, the nature of truth. So it's a form of really a, a growing rise of humanism, uh, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you could trace the, the philosophical pedigree, the philosophical history of this, you'll, you'll be, I'll be quickly out of my depth uh, in, in doing that. So all I can do as a detective, right, or as a father, as a youth pastor, is to simply yeah. look at what I'm seeing, see how this technology is amplifying it, and then trying to help people yeah. to call back yeah. from that. You know, even though we what might, I mean, even all moral truths now are just seen as relative to people groups or to individuals. That in my way of thinking, that's okay. Doesn't hurt anybody. You know, there's no like list of transcendent moral truths that people are willing to bend their knee to. They've all developed instead in their own mind a set of personal moral truths. But remember, even the worst criminals in history have done that same kind of thing. It doesn't mean that, but but again, um, I think what happens is I can say, well, look, um, Richard Ramirez the night stalker here in Los Angeles, he had his own set of moral truths, but you would argue, well, yeah, but he had victims. He victimized people. That's different. Okay. Well, how about this then? Um, so um, this me too movement has been popped up, you know, in the last couple of years and it's very important. I think yeah. it's very important because I would agree this is not right. It needs to stop. But if all of moral truths are simply a matter of opinion, then the actress who thinks that she has rightfully been violated has no way to argue for it. Because the, the producer who's making her do this thing can, can, can say, well, look, I have what you want. I have the job. We outnumber and we outpower you. This is how it works in this business. Yeah. If you want that acting position, you're going to have to do this. If you don't like it, just don't apply for the job. You don't have to have this job. Go do something else. There's no victims here. If you voluntarily want this position, you have to voluntarily do this thing. And of course, we would say, no, you can't ask actresses is casting couch ridiculous misbehavior that you've seen reported in the media. It's wrong, we would say. But it's not wrong because she thinks it's wrong. And it's not wrong if he thought it was or isn't wrong. It's wrong because it transcends both the victim and the perpetrator. There's a trans, it's transcendently wrong, which means that it's objectively wrong. It's not a matter. The only way for it to be subjective is if an individual thinks it's is always where it's coming from or a group of individuals, a group of subjects. But we already know you can't measure it that way because there was already a group of subjects called producers in Hollywood who thought it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And they had the power and the thing that these actresses wanted. And we think, no, it's not okay. And you know why it's not okay? Because moral truth is also objective. And it's not everything in the world Mm -hmm. is a matter of subjective opinion. Even moral claims transcend person groups. And we have to help our young people see that by finding examples in culture where we can argue. So that means until I get a bunch of people to agree with me, it's okay to do this. Until the culture finally Mm -hmm. agreed that it wasn't okay. You know how long people knew that that's how actresses, some actresses had to do do things to get certain roles. You know how long that was going on? Why did everyone turn a blind eye to it? So you mean it was okay back then, but it's not okay now? No, it was never okay. It was never okay because it's objectively evil. But if there are Mm -hmm. no objective claims, if everything's a matter of opinion, then there's nothing that's objectively evil. And that means that the tide could change. Culture could eventually say it's okay. And then you'll have no way to argue against it. You're totally right. I I like what Frank Turek mentions as far as the moral law argument, if you will, and the fact that you don't have to tell somebody that it's wrong or immoral to torture an innocent baby for fun. I mean, that's pretty. But the other thing I look at as well is just the fact of really, if we can find one transcendent, one objective truth or morality, then naturalism cannot explain it. And the fact that it doesn't matter if you go to the remotest part in Africa or in Asia, everybody has an intrinsic desire to worship something whether it's an animal whether it's the sun whether it's god whatever there's an intrinsic burning desire to worship and naturalism just at least for me cannot explain why does everybody have that then you got the worldview questions why am i here where do i come from where am i going type deal so but i love what you said as far as that i didn't really think about the arts aspect i always look at it like these kids aren't getting answers to the questions. And so they're seeking answers yeah. from these secular philosophers and, and professors that sound good. Right. A lot of this but, is they are so the watching. Last question, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What are you saying about watching? Well, a lot of it said that they're watching uh, fictional characters uh, in persuasive movies and persuasive uh, narratives that they are mm-hmm. empathetic towards. And those characters are being portrayed, you know, like there's not, not much time you're in a, in a real setting in life where there's a certain kind of music playing in the background to amplify what you just said. But in the arts, there always is. And so you can make something seem quite endearing that is, is not really even true. And, and if, that's what, or if that's where we're shaping our opinions, our moral opinions, well, then you can see why this goes sideways pretty quick. Yeah. The last question I have for you, and it's really one that uh, I have a few friends of mine that have unbelieving parents. Now, they're they're devout Christians. Uh, they're actively serving in their local church, but uh, witnessing to their mother or their father, right. uh, their parents yeah. believe, you know, intellect reveals the fact that we don't need to believe in God, yada, yada, yada. What type of words of encouragement or wisdom would you give for these people that are trying to witness to their parents, but they're just remaining atheistic and, and sort of hard. Yeah, it is difficult, right? Because I've, I've got an unbelieving parent. So I know what, what that feels like. And a lot of it is because if you think about it, you've been raised as the one who your parents taught. And so there's an, you know, it, it, it's so hard to, um, you might have an easier time of, of persuasion with a complete stranger than you with somebody in your own family, right? Somebody who's known you your entire life, 
who knows every way you messed up, every, knows every little wart and pimple of your life. Uh, those folks know, you know, and, and also these are your parents, there's an authority issue when it's your parent, right? It's like, I, I went to my dad for advice. My dad's not coming to me for advice. Um, so what I had to do, at least initially, what we need to do is we need to do two things with people like that. You need to pray and model Christ, pray and model Christ. That's the strategy for anyone you see that no matter, it seems like no matter what I say, it's falling on deaf ears. Okay. Well, I've said all that stuff to my dad. I, he knows what the gospel is. He's heard me talk about it a thousand times. My saying in another time, next time I see him is not going to be as any more persuasive pr 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 probably than the last time, but I can't, I can do this. I can, the only, only person who can move my dad from a point of hard skepticism to a softened heart that might listen to this, even to what he remembers I said to him earlier is God. I don't have the power divinely to, to um, soften his will, to soften my dad's will. That's something that only God can do. So am I going to continue to act like I have that power when only God has that power? I need to ask God to do the thing that I know I can't do. Along the way, I have to not add offense to an already offensive gospel. So I'm trying my best mm -hmm. to model for him. Also, though, I'm also trying to model other things. So, for example, um, my dad's a detective before me. I wanted to out-detective my detective father. If for no other reason, then I hoped that then when I had an opinion on something or I brought out an inference on something, I'm not even talking about uh, religion now or about Jesus. I'm talking about right. just about anything. He would know that I'm somebody who does my homework. Yeah. And he might be more persuaded by this, right? So, for example, I bought uh, a car, a model of car, and he came out to visit. He's several states away from me. And the next thing I know, he calls me. He says he bought the same model. I thought, oh, interesting, right? So apparently he trusted my selection of this model of car. Um, and he thought, well, if it's good enough for Jim, it's be good enough for me. So a part of this is because for years I have tried to model something reasonable to him. I'm not hysterical mm -hmm. in my approach with him because I know that would never persuade him, but I'm not hysterical about anything for that regard, because I know if I'm crazy over in this one area that I try to talk reasonably over in this area, he's going to go, well, he's crazy over there. Why is he not crazy over here? So I'm trying to model for mm -hmm. him two things. Number one, a reasonable life that is well-lived. And two, um, as, and this is where I'm going to fail, of course, is, is the nature of Jesus as well as I can uh, for my mm -hmm. dad to see so that I don't add offense. Like we've all known Christians who I've said, like I've known Christians who are pretty mean. <laughs> we had one yeah. I worked with that was so mean spirited so regularly that one of the guys who's an atheist said, well, there cannot be, you can't believe there's a, in God or a heaven because if there's a heaven, that dude's gonna be there. That would be hell for all the rest of us. So there can't be a heaven because of that guy. And I thought, wow. Right. So that's how the atheist saw the kind of mean-spirited Christian. I, I can't be that guy. Obviously, you're probably not being that guy in front of your parents. But my point is, right. you have to model something that opens the door. And then you have to find opportunities. And, and I think as, as our parents age, if nothing else, probably transcendent questions are going are, are to arise. Not that they're going to ask about God, but they're going to ask about the meaning of life and whether they lived a good one and what, and if there anything coming after this one, and there'll be opportunities to talk about what is true. I never though would ever talk about those things in front of my dad, unless I could make a case for them because my dad's smart and he's a cop and he's a detective. Mm -hmm. And 
I knew when I would make these kinds of cases, I could not just make them on the base. And by the way, remember, he's also surrounded by a wife and six children who are LDS. And oh, he, doesn't, yeah. that, he doesn't think that's reasonable. So he's like, is this just no. in the same category? Is this just another form of stupid? That's what he's thinking. Right. So I want to make sure I'm not no. presenting this as another form of stupid. Make sense? Oh, it definitely does. Man. Definitely some wise words. And yeah, specifically with your family, there is definite uniqueness involved, uh, especially with yeah. much of your family in the LDS church. And so definitely right. we'll be keep praying for that situation over yeah, there. Exactly. And, appreciate you know, appreciate I know I'm going to pass this on to uh, my friends that have situations similar to yours. So that's pretty much all the questions that I have. Like I said, I can ask you a bunch more, but I know you're a busy man. You got stuff to do. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to just say as we close this interview? Well, thanks for having I think what's so important is what you're doing. If we don't, I mean, the number of pastors are probably even interested in deep diving into the evidence for why this is true so they can pass it on to their congregation. Sadly, I'm not too sure that's a majority. It's probably a, a pretty small minority of pastors. And I just know this anecdote. I don't have any data on this, but as I kind of speak around the country, right. what I see is that people will say, yeah, I wish that we talked about this in our church and it doesn't seem to be happening. Mm. So the fact that you're even willing to engage, just want to congratulate you for taking the time to engage these issues because not everyone who's leading church groups is necessarily interested in that because a lot of it was, this wasn't their own um, way into the, to the, to the worldview. And, and this is a lot of work. Mm. Like already you've demonstrated that yeah. you've had to read a number of sources. And some of these are pretty hard reads. Um, you know, if you're reading philosophy, for example, to understand the, the kind of the historical background for some of the things we're talking about, those are not easy reads. Um, and so to be committed to doing that is it, it's uh, commendable for sure. So I want to just, just congratulate you in that area. I appreciate that, Jim. So your ministry is cold case Christianity, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yep. All you right, can so find me at cold case go ahead out there. Cold case yeah. Cold case Christianity. And, and you have a bunch of videos out there. You got other people that speak as well. So Jim, I appreciate your time. Uh, like I said, we'll be praying for your ministry. Like I said, still praying for your family and just everything else like that. Thanks, uh, I appreciate those it. Those of you still sticking around, thanks for checking us out. Uh, leave me notes in the comments below if you have any other uh, insights for future interviews. But until next time, God bless.